This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, going incognito with ADSB. New protocols for pilots with insulin-treated diabetes. Another single-engine turboprop now certified. A successful high school aviation STEM symposium. Also, it's deja vu all over again for Mooney. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, Ian? Let's do some Hangar Talk, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Mike Collins, caught up with Chris Kresge, the CFI of the year. And Chris Kresge founded Mil2ATP. That's like Mil, like military, to ATP, to a professional pilot training world. And it's a veteran-owned and operated flight school. And, of course, he is the best CFI in the country. All right, so we'll get some tips from him later on. But first, let's get through the news. So we're going to start with some ADSB privacy. Now, this is something that I think that's always been kind of sitting in the background with ADSB. If uh, you've used ADSB, you know that it's like this sort of ultimate tracking service or device, where basically you get N number and, you know, it's like there is no hiding. But AOPA, NBAA, others have been pushing the FAA to get some privacy, and it looks like that will happen by the implementation date. Yeah, Ian, and a little bit more of the details on that. As you know, the mandate for being equipped with ADSB is coming up upon us pretty soon, man. It's in like a month and a half. Yeah. And so folks using the 1090 extended squitter mode, the mode S transponder technology, they will actually be able to opt out of some real-time flight tracking. So that's an interesting development. Yeah, it is. And now this is really most important, I'd say, to like, you know, sort of jet turboprop operators, companies, you know, they don't want competition to know where they're going and be able to get a leg up. And so it's always been an issue for the MBAA crowd. Uh, but I know a lot of uh, private pilots are concerned about it as well. So there are some caveats, we'll say, to this. It's not as easy as just going to a service and getting your end number blocked like it has been in the past. Right. And the 1090 technology, that's really us for folks who are flying in higher altitudes above 18,000 feet. And uh, a lot of folks like me might not use that technology, so I might not even have that particular 
kind of ADS-B in my aircraft. Yeah, that's a great point. So, yeah, you got to have the 1090, and then there's this whole process. And so instead of, you know, laying it out here, I think we should just say, let's go to the, you know, go to the AOPA website. There's a story. Mike Collins wrote it. He's our ADS-B guru. Uh, the headline's new program extends ADS-B privacy to 1090 extended squitter, 1090 ES. So read through that. Get um, get the lowdown on how that works. And if you have questions, you know, you can always email Mike. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. But uh, yeah, because it is it is kind of a complicated concept. <laughs> it, it is. But before we leave the subject, Ian, there's also two other things just to chat about real quick. I think, um, as I alluded to a minute ago, a lot of the systems that we use in the in the lower altitudes are based on that 978 technology, the UAT technology. And that some of the common ADSB devices that you and I looked up just a minute ago are made by Free Flight, the Ranger, uh, the Sky Beacon, and Tail Beacon. And, and, and you did a little bit more research as well, I think Garmin models? Yeah, I think there's a Garmin model, the GDL88, I believe, is a UAT um, transceiver. So, yeah, if you if you didn't pay as much for your uh, ADS-B, generally these are the cheaper installs and cheaper models. That's right, Ian. And with the changes in ADS-B and the mandate that goes into effect on January 1st, there also are some other things people need to keep in mind, such as the designated call signs for compassion flights. That will change, too, and beginning on December 15th, pilots are supposed to stop using the current method of filing. For, in, for instance, if you did a compassion flight, you would be maybe CMF-123, and that was issued to the airplane, but now it's going to be issued to the organization and the individual pilot, and that's, that's going to be run through the Air Care Alliance. They're going to be the administrator. So pilots doing some compassion flights or some animal rescue flights, be advised that is going to change in the near future. Yeah, that's a great point. So, yeah, there are a number of those sort of little unintended consequences with ADSB. So, yeah, again, you know, hit that story, get the lowdown in some more detail, and um, it'll tell you kind of how to proceed there. So uh, let's move on. This is a great, great piece of news for folks who have been suffering with diabetes. This has been allowed, folks with di- insulin-treated diabetes, insulin-dependent um, diabetes have been allowed to fly privately for a number of years now, but have still been kind of shut out of that commercial market, first and second class medicals. And the FAA now is saying, they released on November 7th, a protocol that will allow folks to get those medicals and become commercial pilots. That's right. For folks who are looking to obtain a first or second class medical certificate, as long as they're not going to pose a safety risk, and and they'll know between them and their doctors, they will know about that, they could go ahead and... um, and really, there's a four-step process that you'd have to go about to, to be permitted to fly under these conditions. You want me to go ahead and list them out? Yeah, let's hear it. First thing you got to do, Ian, is to submit an application via MedExpress for, for medical review. That sounds normal. Okay. Then pilots are going to need to undergo a comprehensive medical evaluation. That's number two. Number, number three, show a history of managing blood sugars using continuous glucose monitoring technology for at least six months. And then four, if approved, they will then be issued a special issuance authorization. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, I think for folks who, who have diabetes and have been uh, treated for it for maybe a number of years, let's say, they probably understand all that's going on. We will say that the special issuance process is never as clear cut as it sounds. It takes a very long time and everything else. So if, you, if you're listening and you say, I have insulin-treated diabetes, I want to be an airline pilot. 
that's awesome. You should absolutely go for it, but do some research first. Make sure you can get that medical. It's going to take a long time to get that medical initially. It might involve some expense that insurance doesn't cover. So you want to keep all that in mind, but um, absolutely worth the effort, I think, to, to try that if that is your dream. Now, we should say with a shameless plug that AOPA has some great medical specialists that will help walk you through this process. Absolutely. And they are there for you guys to call and ask questions of them. They really have it together. And I've had several friends call our medical specialist in the Pilot Information Center and just gotten great information. Yep. So that's 800-872-2672. Definitely give them a call because, yeah, they, they do a great service. And, yeah, I, I know even people in the building will walk down there and say, hey, we got this thing. I, I need some help figuring it out. And they're great. They These guys, they know the process hands down, cold, best in the business at that. So give them a ring if you have a question about this or really anything else. And good news for folks who have airline aspirations. So go ahead and take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, another single-engine turboprop just got certified, the Epic E1000. This is based on the Epic LT, the experimental amateur-built single-engine turboprop pressurized, which is incredible. But yeah, this has been a long time coming now and a new competitor to primarily, let's say, probably TBM. Ian, you did some research on the TBM, and um, we'll sort of we'll go head to head with these for a little bit. But the E100 is the FA certified version, like you said, of the Epic LT. And that six seat, 325 knot turbine powered aircraft has actually been flying for a while. Um, the first prototype flew in 2004, and the first kits were delivered in 2006. Now it's 1.9 million dollars if you make it yourself. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> but uh, but it's a three point uh, 3.25 million retail price for basically the certified version. But that is interesting news, and about 80 orders are confirmed for that. And there are many of these Epics flying around, about 50 of them already flying around from the experimental amateur-built category. So they have been flying for a while. Yeah, and they are, by, by all accounts, really, you know, speedsters, great performing airplanes. It will compete pretty closely with the TBM. You mentioned 325 knots, I think. It's supposed to go. The TBM lists 330 as the max speed. TBM, you're going to get a little more range, maybe a couple hundred miles. I, I doubt that many people are flying to the extent of these, the range on these things anyway. I think TBM gives you a couple hundred more pounds of payload. One, another thing it gives you is some longevity. I mean, the TBM's been produced for decades now, so you know you're going to get support. But you're paying a premium for that. The, the 910, which you know is the closest competitor because it's got that G1000 panel, same as the Epic. TBM 910 is, let's call it around $4 bucks. Whereas, as you said, I think the Epic is going to be like 3.25. So it's almost a million dollars that you're saving if you go the Epic E1000 route. And it, it is a really sleek-looking airplane. It's got that same look as, as the TBM, and it uh, does have a lot of versatility. So that's an that's interesting development in that market, in that particular turboprop you know, certified market. And we're seeing a lot more movement in that area, too. And we really haven't talked about it for a while, but Cessna's coming out with that twin-engine you know, uh, caravan-looking uh, airplane. And we got that several other aircraft that, and actually, in Cessna coming out with another one as well. Yeah, the Denali. Yeah, yeah, the Denali. Right, right. So there's a little bit more movement in that in that market than we have been used to seeing in the past. Yeah, that's very true. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens over the next couple of months. I mean, you know, getting to certification, it's you know, you're talking a huge, huge investment. So you know, to to see them recoup that over the next couple of years, you know, we'll see. That should be that should be great, great to watch. One bit of uh, news to watch for. Now, this company, uh, I think they're good to go now 
But if you look in the background, they've hit some hard times in the past. They, the original Epic uh, filed for bankruptcy in 2009 and was acquired by new owners in 2010. So with first deliveries of this aircraft that we're talking about today, you were supposed to be in 2015. So a few years behind, but finally getting out of the gate. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, good. Now, you're just back uh, just from a, a day or two ago from the AOPA Aviation STEM Symposium, the high school STEM Symposium. Uh, this is a big event that AOPA puts on. It's not, you know, if you're, uh, you know, airplane owner, you're out there flying on the weekends for hamburgers and pancakes and stuff like that. This is maybe a segment that you don't think too much about. But this is a place where AOPA has invested a lot of resources, a lot of time. Donors have put a lot of money into this effort at getting aviation into schools all around the country. And so tell us about this symposium because your story makes it sound incredible. Well, it was incredible, Ian. Uh, first, let's say that it was the fifth annual AOPA High School Aviation STEM Symposium. And so f- in five years, we went from about 100 or 150 educators that attended the first one in Lakeland, Florida, which you covered, to th- about 350 that were in Denver and it was hosted at United Airlines at the Flight Training Center. So folks that were there, I mean, I saw um, superintendents for school systems, Ian. I saw principals. I saw teachers. And um, I made a lot of friends uh, with folks. And also have seen quite a few of the same people over the years uh, attending some of our teacher hands-on demonstrations that we have here where we teach teachers how to do these projects in class. And Ian, the bottom line is, number one, it makes aviation and science fun. So for folks who don't know what STEM is, it's science, technology, engineering, and math. And so if you are a student like in 10th grade, uh, and we do have a 10th grade curriculum, 11th grade curriculum, 9th grade curriculum, and we're going to roll out a senior curriculum before not too long too, but it really keeps students engaged. Some of the experiments that they've done, projects in class have been to make a, a balloon, a hot air balloon out of paper mache, and, you know, a little t- I'm sorry, out of tissue paper rather, and, um, and also to, uh, to kind of simulate the payload of a rocket by using balloons and paper clips. So it's, it's stuff that the teachers can do for pretty inexpensive prices out of their pocket and just keep the kids engaged. And there also are some really interesting class lessons. I thought, I'm, I'm going to guess that you might have helped them with some of these lessons, too, because some of it's about aviation history. <laughs> no, you give, me, you give me too much credit. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, it's, well, it's a really good point because, I mean, th- this does, it ties in. So there's a couple of facets of this that, um, that I think are really important. One is this symposium, which is sort of the, you mentioned the principals, you know, curriculum directors of big systems, you know, money people for districts. So people who can make these decisions about bringing aviation into an entire school-wide system, which is, you know, obviously we're going to get a huge impact. And then there's the really kind of nuts and bolts, like you mentioned, hands-on training of teachers that involves the curriculum that AOPA developed. And so you've got this sort of, you know, uh, session of leaders that come together every year, talk about, you know, where the industry is going. You guys heard from uh, people at United who are looking at, you know, future workforce. You had, uh, what, a former lead of the Thunderbirds talking just about what kind of careers are in aviation and the opportunities. And then the teachers later will come back and they can come to AOPA headquarters and really learn hands-on, which is a teacher's dream, really, I think, and, and how to do this stuff and how to implement it. And, uh, yes, you're right, Ian, and check this out. So right now we have um, 5,000 students in 9th, 10th, and 11th grades at 161 schools in 34 states utilizing the AOPA 
STEM curriculum, and it is free, F-R-E-E, to the school systems. And that is uh, the number one thing we want to get across to folks who are listening. And podcast listeners who might have friends or students or they are teachers, you know, just pass this information along. We want to get the program out to more schools. Yeah. But yeah, we um we heard about we heard from some interesting people. I want to uh, give a couple of shout outs if you don't mind. And uh, first to uh, to Kevin Robbins. He's he was our keynote speaker one day, and he's a, a former U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds demonstration squad leader, and he was hilarious. But uh, <laughs> but he also but he also basically said, and this is a vital point: don't let other people discourage you from achieving your dreams. I mean, that is a key thing. And then um, I met another gentleman who was just really the coolest guy. I want to give a shout-out to Ray Evans. He was a checkride pilot for United, and he has his own personal story. Ray learned to fly. Um, he's an inner-city youth from New York City, and he delivered packages on his bicycle oh, wow. to save up to save up money for flight training. That's awesome. And now he's a checkride pilot for United. I mean, it's incredible. He really had a, a lot of good personal inspiration, and he basically said, listen— there, where there's a will, there's a way. You can make this happen. There, you know, you can work at the local airport. You can, like he did, uh, deliver packages, save your money, take a bus ride out to the airport like he did, but get started in it. The other person we heard from was U.S. Air Force uh, Lieutenant General Jackie Van Ovost, and she's a really informative person and talked a lot about what educators could do and what we could look at in the future. And she says that the the technology might be in air and in space and in manned and in unmanned operations. So, you know, educators need to look for that diamond in the rough student and kind of shape them and nurture them. They might they might be an astronaut one day. You never know. Yeah. Yeah, very true. So, hey, before we leave this, I, I want to I want to say you learned something about yourself at this symposium. <laughs> uh, you got to go in the United opened up their 737 sim because you were at the training center. And you were given the chance to land the 737, and you learned that you could be a GA hero in the back of an airliner, right? My wife, Lisa, always asks when we're on a commercial flight, she said, David, you know, if something happens to that pilot, do you think you could land this airplane? Well, Lisa and everyone else who's asking, the answer now is yes. Yeah, man. And uh, yeah, I did. I landed a 737, a Boeing 737, at uh, Denver International Airport. It was great. I had uh, expert coaching from Ray. And also along with me was Kevin Moss. He was there uh, for um, for encouragement to me, but he also got a chance to land as well. And he's a teacher. He's a high school teacher. And we were also with uh, Warren Wheeler, who's another educator and a retired Piedmont Airlines captain. So uh, Ray took us all through the scenarios. And yes, Ian, I'm now pretty familiar with the 737 cockpit. I'm not saying it'd be a great landing, <laughs> but Ray patted me on the back and said, way to go, Dave T., way to go. You did a good uh, job. So I think I think I could do it. That's awesome. You're, you're farther along than I would be. I always answer that question. No way. No way. Don't ask me. <laughs> oh, you could do it, Ian. I tell you uh, what, that 737 is a pussycat to fly. If everything's going right, yeah, you know, well, but that's, th- yeah, that's, that's the difference. Right. That's the difference between me and Ray. It's like you know, I can do it once, or you know, maybe I did it another a, a while back too at UPS. But and those guys have to do it every day when stuff is not going right. So hats off to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, so we want to we want to close out the news today on kind of a sad note, but you know, we we've been down this road before and we'll probably be down it again, and that is that Mooney has at least for the time being completely closed up the factory. 
no notice, uh, no plan for the future. They are just shut down. This is sad news in Mooneyville, Ian. And, you know, I'm a former Mooney aircraft owner. I had an F model and a C model. And honest to goodness, it was touch and go when I had my airplane as well as to whether I had would have parts support or not. And even while I had my airplane as an aircraft owner, there were times when the factory was shuttered. And um, this is not something new for Mooney, although this is a very, very sad day because quite a few hundred people were working in that factory. And these are, these are hand-built airplanes, Ian. They're all aluminum. They are stout. They are so well-built. And it really is, you know, American ingenuity. I mean, we were just talking about the, the TBM models. And uh, you and I did a teeny bit of research in that Sokata TBM actually started as a Mooney model in the 80s. So this is not good news for uh, Mooney owners. We still don't know exactly what it means, but no one was there to answer the phone. Jim Moore, our colleague, called up on the telephone and he got a recorded message. Please be advised that all Mooney employees have been furloughed at this time. Yeah. And this is really, I think, uh, pretty fascinating because, you know, typically when this happens, it's like, you get some notice of bankruptcy. You get, uh, you know, either a restructure or a sale, you know, outright. It's like there, there is no notice. And so maybe this is a cultural thing because, of course, they are owned by a Chinese company. But, you know, there's money in making parts for these airplanes. So the support mechanism actually is key to folks like myself and, you know, thousands of Moonies that are out there. These air, Like I said, these are very well-built airplanes. They do not just disappear. Yeah. You know, they're well-built, and then we need a lot of uh, parts support. You know, Al Mooney founded that back in 1929, and uh, they hit hard times in between the, the 30s and 40s and 50s even. Uh, but it's been in Kerrville, Texas, ever since the early 1950s. Uh, but they've had a lot of bankruptcy filings, production starts and stops, and, and ownership woes. Recently, in 2013, they had some Chinese investment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We thought things were going well. They uh, recently introduced a dual-door model on the Mooney, and so that was a new development that people have been asking for. And these are deluxe, sleek, fast aircraft. Yeah, I flew one back in uh, an Acclaim Type S. It might have been 07. And man, that thing is just a hot rod, awesome airplane, great fun to fly, flies beautifully, fast. Uh, we took it up to 25,000 feet. I mean, it was great. Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, Izzy Goyer wrote, has been writing about this, and, and she, she was sort of comparing it to Cirrus, which is natural. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, the Mooney is superior. I mean, it's faster. It's cheaper. I think it's better looking. But you look at Cirrus, and it's like you know the company is going to be around. So if you're looking at a new airplane, it's got safety features that the Mooney doesn't no longer has. You got that parachute, and you got to now you have uh, auto land in the jet. So yep. So yeah, I, I it's it's easy to see why they weren't able to compete on new airframes. But like I said, I mean there is money in parts. So whether they kind of restart with a new plan or whether they sell the company and somebody else decides to provide support, it will happen. Yeah. It's just a question of kind of when and how, I think. Yeah, like a lot of the older aircraft, vintage aircraft that we talk about, including the air coupe that I used to own, we got our we can still get parts for that through other companies like Univair is pretty well known for older aircraft. Makes you wonder who'll who'll do any will anyone come and get the type certificate for the Moonies? Will another company crank it up? But yeah, the Moonies are they need some TLC. They've got these rubber shock donuts. That's a real common repair item. The nose gear is a real common repair item. So someone's got to come along and help us uh, keep those birds flying. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, hey, let's bring on our guest this week. Uh, Mike Collins, we mentioned, got got in touch with Chris Kresge, the uh, AOPA CFI of the Year. Chris has got this really interesting perspective because, as you mentioned, he transitions military pilots to civilian life, which, of course, times are good right now for military pilots who decide to get out and do some airline flying. So Chris, I think, has got some some a little bit different perspective than most sort of CFIs who are just coming up through the ranks, but uh, love to hear about him and, and his background and what he sees as uh, keys to success there. I'm here with Chris Kresge, who's been recognized as CFI of the Year through the AOPA Flight Training Experience Awards. Chris is an F-15 Strike Eagle pilot and instructor, and he's also a retired F-15 Strike Eagle pilot and instructor. And he's an airline pilot who founded the Mill 2 ATP Flight School in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Chris, before we get into the school, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into aviation? Uh, well, Mike, thank you uh, for the introduction. The uh, The truth is I, I started flying as a very young child. My dad introduced me to to part 91 flying probably when I was six years old, and I still vividly remember uh, him flying us over our house in northern Indiana and uh, saying, look out the window, and then going to about 30 degrees of bank and pointing out our house to it, and that was just etched in my mind. Uh, so fast forward about 12 years, I moved back to the United States, and, uh, and I enlisted in the Air Force because of, quite frankly, uh, patriotism. It's not a watered-down sentiment and, uh, and my love for flying. When I went into the recruiter's office, I told her I don't really care what, you, what job you get me in the Air Force as long as I can work on airplanes every day. And so I got to be a uh, C-141 heavy airlift mechanic for about five years, and that was a lot of fun. So generally, the loadmaster doesn't get to have much interaction with the flight controls. How did you transition into the uh, cockpit? So I actually wasn't a loadmaster. I was a crew chief. I'm sorry. Um, no, it's okay. As a flying crew chief, they actually called us uh, alternate crew members. We were we were required ground crew members. So I did get to fly in the cockpit frequently. Although, yes, there was absolutely zero interaction with the flight controls. I loved everything about it. After my time uh, on the C-141 McGuire, I got married there, and uh, we moved to Yakota. And it was at that point I decided that uh, I needed to I needed to try and pursue flying. Uh, it's not just a way to make a good living, but as a passion. And so I went to college while I was at Yokota Air Base in Japan. I got a four-year degree. And then uh, I went through officer training school in the Air Force and then to pilot training. Um, and, in, and then in pilot training, boy, I absolutely I loved everything about it. I, and it was a tough course. It was 12 hours a day, six days a week. But I absolutely loved everything about uh, learning to fly uh, fighter trainers. It was a ton of fun. The T-37, the 7,000-pound dog whistle, as we called it, uh, was a great introduction to flying. And then, and then flying the T-38 was just it's fantastic. That airplane was, was made to fly. It was just a fantastic airplane to learn to fly in. And then on top of that, we got to do tactical navigation and low levels and formation flying. So I couldn't have asked for a better in, real introduction into flying than, uh, than specialized undergraduate pilot training at Columbus in Mississippi. And then what else, uh, what, what was your, uh, your pilot progression through the Air Force uh, up till the date of your separation? Mm-hmm. After I graduated from pilot training, I ended up staying at Columbus Air Force Base as a, a FAPE, a first assignment instructor pilot. 
And I think as an instructor in the T-38, that's really where I learned how to fly. It's an unfortunate truth, but it's probably at the unfortunate expense of my students that I was learning to fly still. I was very young. Uh, I was still a second lieutenant instructor pilot. I taught in the 50th Flying Training Squadron at Columbus for three years. And then in, uh, in 2003, my wife and uh, young family and I moved to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base to fly the mighty, mighty Strike Eagle. Uh, that, was, uh, that was, again, it was a lot of work to get through that basic course, but what a fantastic airplane to fly and to be able to employ in. I did, uh, I did one year in the B course in the 333rd Fighter Squadron, and when that was over, I walked across the street, literally, to the 336th Fighter Squadron, where I did uh, my first operational assignment. Uh, that was also here at Seymour. After my time at Seymour, uh, my wife and kids had, had fallen in love with North Carolina, so we walked back across the street again, uh, and I was an instructor in the 333rd for the next couple of years. Uh, so all said and told, I, I probably did almost seven years straight at Seymour Johnson, which is, it was unheard of. Uh, as that assignment came to an end, I was, uh, I was certainly felt like I was going to be caught up in the unmanned aerial transition. So I was looking for another flying assignment in the Air Force and a fantastic opportunity appeared to go down to Argentina to do a flying exchange with the, uh, the Argentine Air Force, La Fuerza Aérea Argentina. Uh, so I went and did that. That was a great assignment. It was a two-year assignment, and we stayed for three years because it was so good. And I'm still friends with a lot of the uh, students and instructors that I flew with down there. Uh, after that assignment, they, they graciously let me go back to the Strike Eagle again. So I went to RAF Lakenheath in the United Kingdom, where I was uh, an F-15 line pilot and then instructor pilot. And then uh, at the end of that assignment, I moved back to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base one last time for a sixth and final hurrah, also uh, teaching in the Strike Eagle. Uh, at the end of that assignment, uh, I, was, I was an old guy playing a young man's game, so uh, I decided it was time to retire. I had been in for almost 25 years at that point. So you retired from the Air Force, you took an airline flying job, and you started a flight school. Yes, uh, although my intention was not to start a flight school, uh, this really did start as a labor of love. As I was, uh, as I was making the, the transition out of the military, I decided that I would uh, teach my little girls how to fly. So I bought an airplane, and uh, to pay for the airplane, I, I decided I would uh, help some of my Strike Eagle brethren uh, with their airline transport pilot ratings, uh, and everything was born out of that. Um, it became so popular so quickly that we bought an airplane so that we had a spare. Guys were traveling from around the world, no kidding, from around the world to do our course, and I just didn't want to be responsible for them not finishing their training because my airplane broke. So we bought a spare airplane, and that was pretty quickly booked up. So we bought a spare airplane, and that was pretty quickly booked up. So I think we're up to six Seneca 2s now. Uh, and it really has been uh, it has been a labor of love. It's been a lot of fun to uh, to watch the flight school grow. It's been a lot of fun to uh, continually add new employees out of necessity. But yeah, it has it has been uh, it has been certainly a lot of fun to see to see something grow that was not really intentional, not accidental. But we certainly never had any intentions of uh, of being this popular. Could you summarize the process for a military pilot to earn their ATP? Obviously, uh, these people have considerable turbine flight experience, but many of them have never operated in the civilian world under our FARs. Absolutely correct. And so while Air Force rules are derived from FARs, uh, they are absolutely different. And so part of the process is is the mental transition from Air Force rules to to federal aviation rules. 
It all starts with the, the new requirement, the Airline Transport Pilot Certification Training Program, which is a good introduction to Part 121, Flying and Operations. It introduces FAR 117, and it, it really does a good job of priming military pilots for what's to come next, but it doesn't bridge the gap of Part 91 rules. So after the ATP-CTP program, that's the prerequisite for the written test, and then it's after the written test that uh, we, we grab them and start training them. And ours, our course is really meant to, to condense Part 91 rules into a very abbreviated course. But it all starts with, um, with operating rules, basic rules. Uh, what we try and do is we sprinkle Part 121 requirements with some advisory circulars and FAA recommendations and best practices into our course so that when people finish our course, they're a much more well-rounded pilot. So how long does the course normally take? Do you do it in, in a week, less than a week? The ATP CTP is a week, uh, and then our course is typically a week. It's typically Monday through Saturday, although depending on the time of year, uh, it may take a little bit longer or a little shorter simply uh, due to the number of hours we have available, daylight hours, if you will. In the summertime, we can't fly in the middle of the day because in North Carolina, it's a special kind of hot, and so it depends. But we typically plan for Monday through Saturday. What kind of challenges do you see bringing folks from high performance, uh, in many cases, turbine aircraft down to a, uh, a solid but piston-powered uh, Piper Seneca? Well, several fold. Part of it is, it depends on the background they came from. Negative transfer is, is a real problem. For example, uh, for a C-5 pilot that is used to sitting two and a half stories high, telling him to wait to flare until they're three feet off the ground can be can be problematic, and so certainly a very timely instructor demo is is required there. But negative transfer is the biggest overall problem that all of the pilots will face. Our instructor pilots here, all of them have a military background, and so we can certainly predict and relate to uh, the problems that, that our student pilots will have. But because they're all very accomplished pilots with multi-thousand hours of turbine time, at some point in their flying career, they have seen something similar. And so we always try and equate what we're doing to something they've seen before. The other side of it is uh, that the turbo piston-powered airplane, turbocharged piston-powered airplane, presents unique challenges, particularly for folks that are used to being able to select toga power or afterburner. Uh, certainly the judicious power application in this airplane is probably the biggest overall challenge we face, but I absolutely love this airplane as a training platform simply because it's so safe. So you mentioned the uh, tendency of a C-5 pilot to want to flare a little bit high. What are some of the other recurring transition challenges that you see moving into the, the humble Piper Twin? Uh, and again, I think part of it's background driven. Most, uh, most fighter pilots have never really had to worry about uh, crosswind controls. And so if there's a crosswind, that can certainly be a challenging situation for, uh, for say, an F-15E pilot. F-16 pilots have never truly experienced non-centerline thrust because they, the typical transition now is T-6 to T-38 to F-16. And so asymmetric thrust is a real problem. Rudder control is certainly a serious challenge. F-18 pilots, Navy pilots, don't have an ILS in their airplane. The last time these guys flew an ILS was at pilot training. And so they're used to flying the ball on the boat or they're used to getting a PAR. 
And so that's a serious challenge for those pilots. And so, as, as, as I said before, I think a lot of the, the very specific challenges we face is airframe specific. What's the, what's the pilot's background? And, and we've been able to build a reasonably good course just based off of our understanding of what a student's limitations will be. And I keep calling these guys students. Certainly we view them that way, but they're very accomplished pilots. So it's simply a matter of, of, of uh, understanding their background and then applying a very, very abbreviated, very specific preemptive fix to problems that we know are going to exist. What's the uh, breakout of your ATP transition students over the course of a year between um, Air Force, there's an Air Force base here, and uh, there's some uh, serious mil- uh, Marine Corps aviation just down the road, uh, you get many Navy pilots. We do get um, probably 30 to 40% of our clients are Navy pilots. Oddly enough, probably only 2% of them come from North Carolina, though. We get a preponderance of, uh, of them from Lemoore and from Miramar. We do get some students from Whidbey Island. And again, I'm flattered that people would walk across the street to do this course, let alone travel halfway across the country or all the way across the country to do our course. But uh, the preponderance of our students do really come from uh, Navy pilots and Marine Corps pilots come from the West Coast. Uh, Do you keep up with your students after graduation or most of them going to the airlines? Is that their their objectives? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yes to both those questions. Um, We really bond with these guys. Uh, This really is a mom and pop run operation. You met my wife, Kim, earlier. She's the smiling face behind the desk. Tracy Baisden is uh, also a military, ex-military spouse. And so we, you know, we really do bond with these guys and, and we keep up with them afterwards 100%. I, I certainly, uh, I'm always very curious to see where they do end up. And we do run a, a robust social media network here for the flight school. And so we keep up with them via that social network also. And all of them are here for some reason. Not everyone is, is separating from the military today. Oftentimes it's simply a plan B because they don't know what's next. And every military officer is one assignment away from separating. It's just a lot of them don't know that. And so when, when they show up here as youngsters simply to have a plan B, I applaud them. I wasn't that smart when I was young. I waited to get my ATP until uh, not quite the bitter end, but uh, close to it. And so I applaud these youngsters for, uh, for seeing the fact that, that they will need a, another employment opportunity at some point in the future. And having this ATP rating is certainly something that will pay dividends later. A large preponderance of our clients, 50 to 60% are within a year of retiring. And so their plan is to do this course and start applying to airlines immediately. But we keep up with all of them because regardless of, uh, of whether they're transitioning to an airline or not, I want to know what they're doing. I want to know if they're doing another operational assignment, if they've switched airplanes. We have a lot of guys that are flying, a lot of friends of mine that, uh, and again, some of them start off as clients, but friends of mine that have transitioned to just the most fantastic airplanes that there are, F-35 pilots, U-2 pilots, F-22 pilots. Uh, And I, I like to live vicariously through them, so I keep up with them as much as I possibly can. So do any of your clients uh, wait till they have already separated and then come in, or are most people doing that uh, to provide for a smooth transition when they retire from the service? There's a, there's a percentage, probably 10 to 15%, that have already retired simply because they were in jobs where their perception was they were indispensable. They could not stop doing what they were doing because the national security system would fail. And so for those few, it, it's a bit of a tougher transition because they are staring at, empl- at unemployment. It's pretty high pressure for them. It's not a plan B. It's a holy mackerel. I should have done this years ago. We also have uh, a large portion of students that are not currently flying. 
They've gone to a staff job. They've been told they probably weren't going to make their next rank. And so they've decided to retire. But now being non-current presents its own separate set of challenges. But the good news is they all have thousands of hours of, uh, of flying experience to fall back on. And the memories are back there in the brain. We just need to pull them forward. Uh, but that presents a unique challenge sometimes as well. The school offers more than only the ATP transition. Um, tell me what else you guys offer. You have uh, some military members who maybe are non-pilots uh, coming out here and, and starting from private pilot training, for example. We do, uh, we do every, every course, every conceivable course. Uh, that you can do in a fixed-wing airplane. A lot of our young students, because we're right next to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, a lot of our young private pilot students are are actually weapon systems officers, Strike Eagle, backseaters that would like to be competitive for an Air Force Pilot Training Board. Hands down, they are the easiest people to teach for several reasons. They have they've been in the back of a Strike Eagle for several years. They have great airmanship. They are incredibly motivated. So if you tell them you need to study chapter three, they will memorize chapter three. And just because of their great their great airmanship, it allows them really to pay attention to instruction. They're less worried about about what the action reaction is with the stick and rudder skills. And so they're they're easy to teach because they understand the nuances of 30 versus 45 degrees of bank. They understand the the, the concept of how an airplane stalls. They're just, they're just fantastic students to teach. Uh, we do get a lot of young youngsters, high school, high school students, that uh, in the summertime want to come out here and try and get their private pilot rating before they go off to college. And so certainly we do offer uh, private pilot commercial instrument uh, and instructor training on uh, both single and multi-engine. But our, our niche, our specialized purpose is certainly the airline transport pilot rating. Um, and I think we do a great job at that. Hopefully, um, as, as we move forward, we are trying to, uh, to build up a more robust single engine program. We are looking at partnering with a university to, quite frankly, support the military community that's here in, uh, in North Carolina, both at Fort Bragg and at Seymour Johnson. And uh, so hopefully I can say standby for great things, but, uh, but we'll play it by ear. Do you get any uh, military helicopter pilots looking to transition over to fixed wing and uh, ATP? We do. Not only helicopter pilots, but uh, there was a large V-22 community. Thankfully, the, uh, the FAA has changed the rules for those, those uh, heavy lift pilots to where now they can count a, lot of, a large percentage of their time, as, uh, or all of it rather. They can count it towards fixed wing time. So either multi-engine or single-engine, if they're Harrier pilots, we do get uh, we do get some of those students. We do we we certainly get uh, some helicopter pilots that are looking to get their ATP, and so the requirement, however, to to be eligible for the ATP, they have to have 250 hours of fixed wing time, and 50 of it is multi-engine time. So at that point, I kind of scratch my head and say, you're not really a helicopter pilot. You're a fixed wing pilot that simply has a bunch of helicopter time. Uh, so they're they're reasonably easy to help with the transition. Also, we do have a rotary transition program to help helicopter pilots build up that 250 hours of flight time, but it's not something that we actively advertise or pursue. It's something that if someone asks us, we absolutely offer it. But we do we just try and we try and be really really good at one thing, uh, and that happens that just happens to be the airline transport pilot rating.
So how does it work for those uh, helicopter pilots looking to move to the airlines? Obviously, they need that fixed wing time. Uh, does Do the airlines recognize that turbine time that they've accrued? They do. Um, all of their military flight time counts towards them getting a restricted ATP. And certainly the regional airlines value their airmanship. Uh, and, they're, and they're highly marketable once they get to that thousand hours of uh, turbine, fixed wing turbine time. So while while, yes, they recognize it as turbine time, really what the major airlines want is fixed-wing turbine time. Uh, so the, typically the progression for a helicopter pilot will be to get their 250 hours fixed-wing time, and again, 50 of that multi-engine. Then they'll go straight to a regional airline. I am self-admittedly the world's worst salesman. Uh, if our course makes sense for someone, I will offer it to them. And if it doesn't, I will let them know that there may be a better and or cheaper pathway. So for a, for a helicopter pilot, it makes sense for them to get their flight time and then go straight to a regional airline because that regional airline is going to offer them the, the airline transport pilot certification training program and the written test and the, the ATP on their type rating checkride. And so it saves them $12,000. And it just is what makes sense. Again, I, I, I try not to, to be I try not to be a snake oil salesman for lack of a better term. And so for a lot of these a lot of these pilots simply coming here just does not make sense from a financial standpoint when they're going to have to go to a regional airline anyway. What about getting CFIs, Chris? Are you having any trouble finding instructors? I, I know a lot of flight schools across the country, it's a challenge because the regional airlines are snapping people up as soon as they hit the magic number of hours. The answer to that question is is yes and no. I'll start with the no. Uh, our multi-engine ATP course is currently staffed by folks that I flew fighters with. I flew combat sorties with these guys. And as they say in the Navy, they're people you can trust with your wife, your watch, and your wallet. And therefore, I can absolutely entrust them to execute our training plan. And, and I do get calls routinely from, from instructors that want to build multi-engine instruction time. It's just that we have a very a very small staff that's intentionally groomed and managed, and so I don't have a shortage of multi-engine instructor pilots. However, the single-engine portion, as you said, the regional airlines are are snapping these young pilots up at whatever their magic number is. If they're restricted ATP, or if they need the full 1,500 hours, it's tough to retain young, motivated instructor pilots because. Most of them came into aviation so that they could go be airline pilots. Their, their passion wasn't to be an instructor pilot. That was simply a means to an end. And so it is hard to retain highly motivated young instructors. But there are certainly uh, there are places that we reach out to to, uh, to try and find these youngsters that want to build some time pretty quickly. Um, I have a couple of personal stipulations for these, these youngsters, though, when I do hire them. I do make them take two days off a week so that they don't burn themselves out as youngsters. And then uh, whenever they're eligible to go to an airline, I absolutely encourage them to leave. Again, it's probably a poor business practice, but if they're happily ever after started because they wanted to be airline pilots, well, this was a necessary step they took in the means to that end, and they should go as soon as they're eligible. So I, I currently find myself with an absolute shortage of single-engine instructor pilots. Uh, but the good news is, for me, all of my multi-engine instructor pilots are also single-engine CFIs. And so uh, we, do, we do cross the streams quite a bit. But I, I currently, absolutely, I, I, find a, I find a terrible shortage of young, motivated, highly qualified CFIs, as, as I think any flight school in the country does.
And my last question for you, what bit of advice would you give to a military pilot who is interested in flying commercially after the service? I'd say it depends on, on at what point in, in their career they're asking the question. Um, if they're a youngster, I would tell them to pursue Part 91 flying on the weekends, even if their weekends are Tuesday and Wednesday. If they can go out to a local airport and hang out with the airport folk and just simply learn Part 91 flying, rent a Cessna 172 or a Cherokee 140, and go discover the absolute joy of flying VFR. Unfortunately, that's something we did not get to do terribly often in the Strike Eagle uh, or in any military airplane, uh, although we did do quite a bit of uh, low-altitude flying on MTRs. Uh, it was always in a very strict and controlled fashion. So even on a VR route where we were VFR, we still squawked special IFF codes, and so it was still a, a quasi-form of control, if you will. Uh, but to take off and go down to the Outer Banks in a, in a 140 is absolutely blissful. And unfortunately, a lot of military pilots will never experience that. So I would encourage them, if they're youngsters, go to local FBO, hang out, learn something, get checked out in an airplane, and, and learn all about Python 91 from a young CFI. And at the other end of the spectrum, if there's somebody that's getting ready to retire, my advice is start studying your, your behind. There's a lot of very good online educational material. AOPA is a fantastic source of, of basic safety and knowledge for pilots at all levels. And so I would, I would encourage them to become members of a professional organization like AOPA that prides itself on publishing high-quality study materials and start there. Uh, and then find a high-quality school where you can go and earn whatever ratings you want to earn. And then as you transition to become a commercial airline pilot, continue to study. You, you never really reach a pinnacle, if you will, in commercial aviation. And my thoughts are, if you ever reach the point where you, you think you know everything, you should probably stop flying. So never, never, never stop studying. Any advice for non-military aviators looking to build a career? Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll caveat what I'm going to say with uh, my, my skewed background is I was a military pilot. So in any career, you have to be passionate about it. If, if your passion is being an instructor, be an instructor, be the best instructor you can be. But don't ever pass up the opportunity to fly as many airplanes as you possibly can. Get as many type ratings as you can and enjoy what you're doing. There are so many unique opportunities that flying affords us. If you're not happy doing what you're doing, you're probably not doing what you're meant to be doing. So seek out other opportunities. I, I think that really is the key to any successful career, not just in aviation, but you absolutely love what you're doing. And if not, uh, find a way to find something that you love to do. Chris, that's great advice that uh, life's too short to not be happy. You summed it up much better than I did. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So, David, the, the, Chris, really cool guy. I mean, you know, flew F-15s, he's flying for an airline, and he's really doing this just uh, out of the sort of goodness of his heart and because he just loves to do it. So it's a really cool story. Yeah, he is very inspirational, and he's given back to the community that said uh, gave him so much. And his tips are really good. People um, complimented him on how he was able to manage their expectations and help them get through some of the uh, stumbling blocks that you would sometimes see.
Hmm, okay. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app and on Spotify. All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>